The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today in the studio, I have with me Rob McDonald. Rob is the head of strategic advisory services as Fundhouse and has a very long LinkedIn bio. So I'm not going to go through all of the elements and all of the hats that Rob wear. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I think we're in for a treat today because... I mean, you wear so many hats in this industry, and yet you seem to tackle each of these elements with with so much intention and so much passion. But before we talk about these different hats that you're wearing, I'm curious, how did you get into financial services? We often hear people just stumble upon this, and I'd love to hear your origin story, as we call it. Yeah, yeah, Louis, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's probably a very good place to start, and, and stumble is probably the right word to use. <laughs> Um, but uh, before I, I was in financial services, I, I was actually in academia. Um, I was working at the, the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town. And I um, had been there for four or five years. And um, at the end of 1998, I'm giving my age away there, but at the end of 1998, I, well, so during 1998, I got approached by and another person who's married or Rishi Mars, Barry O'Mahony, who was at the time joining a, 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 a sort of a startup business that was a business uh, which um, had Brait as a shareholder and a business in Australia called IPAC. And that new business was, a, was going to be called IPAC South Africa. Um, so um, it was new. Um, and Barry approached me pretty much out of the blue and said, would I be interested in joining this this startup? Um, and I didn't know much about financial services at the time and so I had a coffee with him and he explained to me what what this business was going to be about and what was unique about it. And I think in a sense, um, the, the story behind that business um, 
it, it, it's really why I suppose I was excited about getting into financial services because it was basically going to try and transform how financial planning was done, you know, how financial advice was given. The idea behind it was a concept known as lifestyle financial planning, which you've probably had discussed on your podcast before. I don't know, has Barry been on your podcast? Uh, Barry, yet not. not. Um, we not, have had okay, quite so. a few advocates of lifestyle financial planning, okay, of which yeah, Dirk Grunewald yeah. is probably the most vocal one. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that I, I met Dirk in those days long ago. But but I think the the point of the story was that uh, I was excited to get involved with a sort of effectively a startup business that was coming out of Brett Unit Trust at the time. I think I was the sixth employee. It was it was headed up by um, Andrew Bradley, who, who you also have had on your podcast at that match. Um, but the, the 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 point of the story was is that um, it was it, I, I I did stumble on it in the sense that I I I um I didn't plan to go to financial services. I, I obviously knew a little bit about it. I I'll, I had also been on the receiving end of of financial advice myself and. And or and my father, in fact, the financial advice he had received had been interesting, and so it was quite easy to see why this concept of lifestyle financial planning was was a good thing, and and I, and I am sort of curious about the fact that it's still seen as a relatively new concept twenty years later, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I suppose it's just shows how much work we still have to do in the industry to to get past the legacy of, of this being a sales-based industry. Um, but so what was interesting about that, Mabu, was that I actually got recruited into an investment role uh, within IPAC. Uh, it was actually to head up the investment research team and then to sort of do investment research and to run uh, portfolios for financial planners. Um, and you'd be you know, well positioned to ask me, well, what did you know about investments? <laughs> And I, I, I knew very little, um, but it was actually, and again, I think this talks to some of the challenges we face in the industry. It was testament to, I suppose, the foresight and the wisdom of the chairman of IPAC at the time, a guy named Uluma Bay in Australia. He was the chairman of the Australian business who, who wanted somebody to come into that role without any baggage, without any history. Um, because, you know, as, as you know, if you're trying to shift things and change things, it's very hard to undo stuff easier if somebody comes in with a clean slate. So so I came in with a clean slate um, and uh, was all starry-eyed and uh, and excited about the prospect of, of lifestyle financial planning and, and of doing things differently in, in, in financial planning and in the industry as a whole. And yeah, so that's how I made the transition from academia to financial services. Rob, I'm curious what the response was of your family. You're saying, I'm going to quit this steady job in teaching and I'm going to join a startup effectively. What was the yeah. conversation around the dinner table? Did, did you include your family or was it, hey, I've, I've already done this? <laughs> so, unfortunately, at the time, I, I was still uh, single. And so, oh. I, I, I didn't have to consult my family or bother them with that. But even though it was a startup business, it had some backers. So, um, so in fact, the, the 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 you know the transition wasn't that uncomfortable. That makes any sense. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like I was um, having to you know dip into my bond and pay myself a salary. You know, Brett and IPAC were the funders of the business at the time, and 
And so their salaries were paid, <laughs> etc. Rob, then how would you approach that life transition if you were to do that today? If this opportunity came about today, given where your life is now, would you have approached it differently? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's an interesting question. It's, uh, oh, well, I've got three teenage children and a wife and two dogs in a home, and uh, <laughs> it, it would be the... It would be a very different conversation if I was going to jump into a, a startup um, where there perhaps the future is uncertain. Yeah, I, and, and I think your point is a good one: is that uh, you've got to have your family on your on your side if you're going to do something like that. One, but no, I um, um I fortunately at the time was able to make the transition with um, most of the conversations being with myself. Rather than others, and trying to work out if it was the right thing for us, for me or not, and and yeah, so that was um, mostly time. They say that's the secret to an intelligent conversation is <laughs> talking to yourself. So, um, thankfully, now with perfect hindsight, we can say that it was a successful move, right? But there's something to say about people taking that risk early on in their career. You know, I've spoken to a few career changes where in their mid or late 50s have said, hey, I'm going to change careers. I'm going to change. We had Joe Fanikarikon and that changed from being a full-time musician to becoming a paraplanner. We've spoken to some people that uh, were teachers, right? Policemen. These are all the roles that you heard traditionally that moved into, let's call it maybe the the sales-led advice side. Is that still something we're seeing today? Is it common for people to actually change careers and move into financial services later on? Well, I mean, I think I, I, I think the, interesting you used the term, the sort of the sales leg, I, I think there is an appeal to that move um, if you're looking at it from a sales perspective because we see somebody who comes into financial planning and potentially is seen as a distributor of product, then the more life experience and the more networks they have, probably the greater potential they offer. What I'd like to think is that um, is that what we're seeing more of, and maybe this is just the front end of the advice sort of move in the industry, is more qualified people coming in who who want to do things right. So more accountants, NBAs, you know, um, who who are saying, you know, that this financial planning is important stuff. And I want to do it right, uh, and and that's why I'm coming in, rather than um, as I think has happened historically. You know, as you mentioned, teachers from you know were coming, you know, with career um, and others, um, and and I think they were seen more as a as a funnel into a into a network. You know, um, I'd like to think that we are moving beyond that, but I'm maybe a little bit idealistic in that regard. Um, but I did have a meeting last week with a financial planner who, who is a you know an electrical engineer, MBA, Rhodes Scholar, all of the credentials, and and sort of made a career jump in sort of mid forties to to um, to financial bust, and then for the reason being able to to do it properly. So um, and uh, and I sp- I'm hoping that 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 becomes more the the route that people follow to get into the industry or the profession. I mean, that's fascinating. You, you mentioned there for the reason to do it properly. Is that to deliver financial planning properly? But what was attractive for that person to, to move at, at, 
at that age in their life to financial services? Um, I don't know. We're already in one arm. I mean, I'm cautious to, so I don't want to go into too much detail because I haven't asked for the commission to share course, the story. But, but I think Predict it's more. The innocent. Well, I, I, but I think the principle of it is is that it, it was about seeing, and I can talk to my own story mm. as well in this regard. And that while I was quite fired up to to take on the challenge that Barry's invitation gave me, was was I had seen, and and I, a number of people have. Um, and I said, I know of people who have done this for the same reason. I I had seen how my father received financial advice. So you know, he he was a he was an engineer. He was a professional. His whole life worked uh, forty odd years. Um, always had a job, but made one mistake. He kept moving from job to job. He didn't he, he didn't stay in one corporate for forty years. So he worked for a number of different companies. Had an interesting career and and trusted his financial advisor. Uh, and when he retired, his you know he had a lot of these um, um, products of a particular color, which I won't mention. And uh, and those products amounted to very little in terms of real asset value. And so my father's sort of best investment was you know four sons who, who were able to sort of provide. Some assistance to him and who's no longer alive, but my mother, who's now 92, is still alive, and you know, to provide assistance to them. So, point being is, even an educated professional for employment for their whole life uh, did not have enough money when he retired. And I think to go back to the advice I was talking about, I think he had seen similar, you know, scenarios play out with other people. So, it's about seeing bad advice being given and, um, I mean, literally, my father's case. I would say no advice being given. I would say products being sold to him, and being a trusting person that he was. That thought of that, that, that his, his advisor in inverted commas was doing the best thing for him. Just trusted. Robin, in your opinion, what would you have said went wrong there? I mean, it sounds like your dad might have outsourced a lot of the decision making and saying, "Hey, this you need you need to make this decision on my behalf." Is that something that's fair? You know, I, I know that's probably with, you know, hidden agendas as well, someone that had to sell additional products. But at the same time, how do we get our clients to also take a bit of responsibility? Because ultimately, this is also their financial lives, not to not to do them in, but to say, hey, there's a balance between taking on the responsibilities that clients are ready to let go of and also giving some of that back. I'm, I'm just curious to hear your take, and, and by no means is this a reflection on what happened to your dad, but if we can if we can learn from what happened there, I think it would be helpful. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that we can definitely learn from that in the sense that um, he was pretty relaxed about life and laid back, and so, you know, was happy just to trust. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there's definitely, it's incumbent upon clients to, you know, to be advocates for their own financial health. You know, if you talk about physical health, at the end of the day, we have to be advocates for our own physical health, and I think we have to be advocates for our own financial health. But I think that there are two elements to that. The one is our lives, and I think that we are all the experts in our own lives, and, and we need help at times to, to navigate what life throws at us or where we want to go in life. But in general, we, we really are responsible for the decisions we make in our life. But, you know, financial planning is, is about our life and our money. And so when it comes to the money bit, you know, I think 
we need a financial planner to help us marry those two concepts together. And, and you know, I would like my financial planner to act as a sounding board to me on my life issues and to act as a sounding board and an expert for me on my money issues. Um, you know, so, so um, to go back to your question, I, I do think that it's a responsibility of the financial planner to, first of all, enable their clients to come to insights and decisions around their life that are meaningful and help them to do that. But, but those are the client's decisions. And then once the clients have made those decisions with your support, that when it comes to now, okay, well, what are we going to do about the, the financial stuff, that I can trust that you're going to give me you know, sound advice around how I can best achieve what I want to do in my life with whatever money I have available or I need to have in the future. You know? and, and, and I suppose for me, what was missing in my father's scenario is I don't think there was a genuine uh, interest in my father's life and, and an interest in helping him get where he wanted. I, I think what it was was simply a case that, and this is, this, I think, a very, I'm going to use the word tragic, legacy of our industry, of our, of our profession and industry, is that the financial advisor simply saw their role as somebody who, because they got remunerated on commission or product being sold, that was the primary focus. You know, and, and, and what to say that, you know, if my father had died and, and had some life policies that he had taken up, that, that wouldn't have been a wonderful thing to have had in place, you know. But the reality was is that, you know, his board of financial affairs weren't properly the doctor. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think it is about challenging clients to take responsibility for their, for their financial health, but then providing the sort of expert assistance to helping them achieve it. It sounds like it's more nuanced than just saying, oh, the, the financial planner failed or, or the industry failed yeah. your dad at that point. It's what you're saying is this balance between, you know, you, your life and then also your finances. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit. You are very involved in the coach training side and wherever you look, probably for the last two or three years, you um, were hit over the head with the fact that financial planners need to learn coach training skills. Is there a place where we go too far where financial planners only spend time on a client's life yet neglect the actual real technical finances? Is that happening? Or do you see an alternative where you know, we talk about this kind of linking up with robo-advisors to become a cyborg advisor, which is a very interesting term. I'd just love to hear Rob's take on where this is going, because we've seen this back and forth in the industry around training and retraining. And then some people saying, oh, you need higher technical skills as well. So I know that's a lot, but... No, no, no. So, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think if, we, if we, the way I look at it is, I look at it to say that, that we need to start off with the, the identity and role of the financial planner and, and say, well, what, what is you know, your identity and what is your role? Um, and, and I would start off to say the identity is financial planner and the role is to help people um, because the point I will make no matter where we go with chat GBT at, at, at all is that the clients of financial advice are always going to be humans. So we're going to make that assumption. So, so the role of the financial planner is to help the human being make and implement decisions about their life and money. So that's their role. And so... I do worry that, as you say, there's been lots of talk about coaching and therapy and financial transitionists and 
and and and and different types of financial specializations. Whereas I think that ultimately what clients need are financial planners who are adept at um, with human skills. You know, um, because the 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 robo advice piece is going to become more and more sophisticated. And and I and I do think the future is one where you know um you know the, the equivalent of Alexa or Siri will will sit in your office, and you will just you know sitting with a client you will just throw any technical query you have into the ether or just say Alexa you know what's what was Rob's RA contribution in 2022 and how can he top up, and and that answer will just immediately be given to you. So you you, you will need to have technical understanding and all of that. Um, and you need to know what, what can and can't be done. But ultimately, you're not going to have to sit and crunch numbers for very long because you know, AI is going to give you all the answers you need. So then what is your role? And I think your role is then to help me make decisions about my money and my life. And and, and because you're getting so much help from ChatGBT at all, I think that it's going to be inevitable that you that you as a financial planner or financial planners in general are going to have to develop the human skills. But they're still going to be financial planners, and this is the part that I, I think is important to stress, is that you know, financial planner is not a psychologist, not a counselor, is not a coach. Financial planner is a financial planner. Can they use skills that therapy, counselors, coaches use? Absolutely. And, and will they enhance the way they do their work? Absolutely. And will the outcomes be better for clients? Absolutely. So... I know that answers the question, do you? But I, but I do I do worry that we, you know, you're hearing about people who now position themselves as a financial coach. Yeah, there are even people who I know in the UK are probably more than yeah, but financial coaches who are not licensed to give advice, but they but they are helping people make sort of choices about money and life, but they're not licensed to give advice, you know. And I think the key here is is that financial planning is a profession that's regulated. You're helping people make very important decisions, um, and hopefully you are enhancing that ability to do that with with as many advanced human skills as you can get. I really like how you position it where we're almost borrowing or being inspired from all these other helping professions. Yeah. Are there any of the professions that you think maybe haven't been under the spotlight where we could learn from to say, hey, like... What what is that profession doing that we can bring into financial planning to make things a little bit better? You you often hear about people saying, take the example of going to a dentist and do the exact opposite. <laughs> so is there is there something similar yeah. that we can think yeah. about? Um, yeah. And then at the same time, if I'm a para planner, I would be really worried because traditionally the role of a para planner was this heavy lifting. Right, it's the technical pieces around your financial plan to compile this, to get this all in together. Together, like, where do they go from here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good good point, and I, I'd be I'd be hesitant to to give an answer to that. I mean, I think it's you know you know because it, you know the other thing that we we have learned about for example, Chat GPT is that it does get things wrong, you know, and so and so you may still need para planners to make sure, you know, that whatever is generated by the computers is actually accurate and do some sense making. So I think, you know, I, I don't want to make a prediction around that, um, but I do think there needs to be human understanding of the technical and human application to the technical, you know. But to go back to your question about other professions, I mean, I, it's, it's quite interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Myth of Normal, 
by a medical doctor named Garbo Martin. And, and he's written a few books um, around the medical profession. Uh, and, and his whole um, thrust is that the medical profession is missing out on the body-mind connection. And, and it's historically treated people purely physically as opposed to recognizing the impact that our context, that our emotions, uh, et cetera, have on our health. And, and, and even though in the medical profession this has been recognized for, by various people over the last 100 years, that there is this connection, the mainstream medical profession is not implementing that insight very effectively. In other words, you go to the doctor, um, and he relates a number of stories in this book about the fact that people who are ill get interrogated on the physical front, but don't get interrogated about you know the potential uh, you know psychosocial factors that could be influencing their health. And so, what I would say, and what I've sort of seen in that is, is well, what can we learn from what they're not doing? So you read, you said about the dentist and do the opposite, but in a in a similar way here, I think. I think that we, you know, I like to say that, that as human beings, the longest relationship we have is with mother. So before you're born, you're in the womb, and your mother has a relationship with money in some form or another. And depending on the level of stress of that relationship or not, it will impact your in, in utero. And then when you're born, you're born into a family or into an environment where there's money, and then after you die, you know, there's still a relationship with money. There might be somebody left over. There may not be, but that is implications. And I think that, I think what we can learn from that is that that there are factors that influence how we interact with money and how we behave with money that require greater understanding of the human being sitting across the table. You know, and so my sense of it is is that let's 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 try and do better than the medical profession, and I, I realize I'm, I'm at danger of health. You might be listening to this shit. <laughs> and boom, you know, yeah, anyway, I, I haven't said anything too incriminating, and I'm assuming you'll cut it if it is. But, but the point is, let's, let's try and, but I think, I think technology is going to force us to do this, is to force us to, to, to keep that focus on the human and how we can help the human make those decisions because technology is, is so, so powerful. Uh, it's a long way around to to say that uh, there's not there's nothing dramatic that I'm seeing. Uh, I mean, other, you know, obviously there, you know, there are things that we can learn, but I think people are doing that already. Things we can learn from other professions or or other industries. You know, the power of visual, for example, that how people, you know, process pictures well. But you know, as opposed to words and numbers, you know, the power of metaphor. You know, so we can learn something from how people tell stories, how stories are very powerful. You know, so there are lots of things we can weave into it. And I think that's what makes financial planning such an amazing profession, is, is that it can draw on so much around life and make it relevant to, to clients. I think it's maybe worthwhile for us to talk a little bit about what you're saying in the medical field, where if you listen to a lot of the mental health practitioners, they say, it's not helpful to put a label on someone. In fact, we don't even want to diagnose someone with a disorder. We're going to treat the person. But in the same breath, we're hearing people that are experiencing financial disorders. And I'm wondering, is it helpful to even start labeling these financial 
disorders, you know, money hoarders. And if you if you read any of the Ted and Brad Clance's work, they talk about the money script and and invariably it leads to there's something wrong with you and we need to fix it. What you're saying, Rob, is how do you treat the whole person? And for someone that's passionate about the psychology side of money, how do you how do you start treating someone and their money when you look at the whole person as opposed to the label that we can easily put on someone. Oh, that person is stingy. Oh, that person, uh, yeah, yeah, you name it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you sort of getting me to touch on one of my other other hobby horses, <laughs> and that is this idea of labeling. You know, I think I think we're in started in, in the simplistic form where we're labeling started in our industry or our profession. But I keep using those words interchangeably because you know we we are hopefully a profession within an industry, but. Where, where I think the labeling started is with the risk profile. So, you know, you, you get a client and you've got your risk profile and you can now label them as conservative or aggressive, moderate, and then you have the rationale for how they should invest their money. And, and that has now evolved to, as you, you mentioned, that clients, but there are others and there's a lot of researchers in Africa, a number of, of the big institutions are now producing different profiles or clients, different profiles of advisors, and you are one of six or one of four or one of eight or one of ten. And I think my concern about that is is that it doesn't recognize the complexity of us as human beings. And so I think that's why financial planners are going to become so skilled because each person sitting across the table from you is unique. And yes, they may have a money script, but can you really you know, give it a label? Because is it so... Are there only so many scripts that can be given that label? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. But what I can do is I can connect with that person. So I think what we're offering as human beings is connection because we are social beings and we, we, we thrive in connection. So if we look at, and it says some research that came out in the last couple of weeks has been quite widely publicized about people's health and happiness in life. And the number one factor is relationships. You know, that, that, that relationships are the biggest indicator of how long people live, how healthy they live. And that's because we're social animals. So I think I think we, we're looking for connection. And, and for me, a label always drives disconnection. You know, okay, Louis, you're, you're a conservative. Okay, now we know what you are, now let's decide, you know. But you Louis, have your box, <laughs> not for Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so I would rather be looking for things that are, that are driving connection rather than disconnection. And and rather, you know, you know, looking for ways for clients, and and I think going back to my father's story, looking ways for clients to take ownership of their financial life. If you know, in a, in a sense, if I labelled you, I'm disempowering you. If I'm disempowering you, I'm not expecting you to take ownership. Um, whereas you know, if if we treat you as a complex being, and we, you know, let's talk about what money was like when you were young, when you were growing up. How was it? You know, and then they can start to inform, okay, hang on, maybe that's why you're nervous at the moment, you know, or maybe, Louis, that's why you've got too much money in cash because you, you know, you had that experience when you were young, blah, blah, blah. And we can start sort of almost doing detective work together, you know, and, and, and I, think, um, I think that's the role of the financial planner increasingly is playing this collaborative role. You know, I, I like to talk about the fact that financial planners have three roles, actually. So the first role is that of a thinking partner. So we, we think together. And how do we think together? We think through conversation. So the more skillful our conversation is, the better we'll think together. 
And then once we've done our thinking and once we've got a sense of where you, if you, the client, are at, then we come to looking at what are the choices that, that face you. And so that I like to talk about your second role as a financial planner is that of a choice architect. You help clients make choices. And then that's again collaborative. You can't you can't do that you can't play that role um, without being collaborative. And then the last role, the third role that I think financial planners play, and this is the one that's been thrown around a lot, so I'm cautious to say it, but I do think there is a, a behavioral coaching role that a financial planner plays. And and I simply say that because, you know, more and more research shows that it's the way people behave around money that affects their outcomes more than anything else. You know, so it's not it's not about where I invest my money that makes a difference. It's about how often I save, you know, how consistent I am, you know, in doing that. Um, and so as a client, I need you to, to, to actually give me a kick up the backside and say, Rob, listen, you're spending too much money. Come on, you know, can't we find a way for you to spend less and save? And, and so there you sort of see that sort of coaching role coming through. So I think yeah I, I I'm I'm not a fan of labeling I, I I mean the other labeling that we're seeing and we and I actually saw a business in the UK that came out trying to help financial planners work out what bias a client was suffering from and then counteracting that with some technology and etc you know and to try and work out you know whether you've got a recency bias or an availability bias or a status quo bias and then to try and work out a technique to counteract that you know I think is a waste of of energy, and again, it's a labeling, you know. So, uh, our brains are, are, are geared for seeking certainty, and so the label gives us the certainty we seek. But I'm not sure that it's helpful for optimal financial outcomes. I want to share a story with you that happened last week, where we took clients through a process where there was some kind of risk profiling involved. It was a little bit more nuanced, and the client asked me is this about my financial life or is it about my personal life? And it was so interesting to see how people could just easily separate them and say, oh no, this is, I'm very conservative when it comes to money, but when it comes to my life, I like taking risks and I like taking chances and see where things. Why do we have such a disconnect or how how can we just compartmentalize money in such an easy way? Or or would you argue that there's maybe a disconnect between the two? Well, I I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, that's, that would be an interesting question to ask that client. Like, what you know? What? But but I but I think but I think it's um in a sense if I, I'm the I'm the I'm the opposite of that client in the sense. So I'm risk averse in my life. You know, I I I think I might have shared with you before. You know, riding a mountain bike, I'm very nervous and I, you know, very cautious. Doesn't always help. <laughs> Can still have an accident even if you're cautious. Um, but I you know I'm not going to go and jump off um. That bridge across the Storms River or where it is, I'm not going to be doing any bungee jumping. So, you know, so you could suggest then that I'm conservative, but when it comes to my money, I sure as well, I sure as hell need as much risk as possible, you know, <laughs> to get me to to the financial goals that I that I have. And so, I think um, for me, the, the, the maybe I, I was overly critical of labels. The one area a label helps is as a catalyst for a conversation. You know, so yes, okay, so so you're conservative, so your client, you're you're risking in your life and you're conservative in your money. What's that about? What do you think that's about? But I but I think and it takes me back to where we began when I when what excited me about lifestyle excited me about lifestyle financial planning and the way that IPAC approached it at that time was to talk about the fact that when clients 
invest money historically in the, the, the industry and the profession have treated and the regulator have said you've got to do a risk profile of a client to enable them to invest money. Um, and, and, and your clients asked a great question, is this a risk profile of my life or my money? Either way, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant because what actually is important is what risk do you need to take for your money to do the work that it needs to do for you? And that's the risk that we have to work out. And that, and actually, Rob, actually, you've got my idea what that risk is. I'm going to work it out for you as your financial plan. I'm going to tell you this is the risk you're going to take. Then we'll have a conversation about whether you have the appetite for that risk or not. But until then, let's not worry about it. You know, let's not even, I mean, we can, let's do a risk profile for the fun of having a conversation or acting as a catalyst. But let's not take it too seriously because it's not going to help, certainly in my case, and I think in many clients' case, not going to help me get to my financial goals um, or needs because um, I would probably have all my money in cash if it followed the round of my life. <laughs> Rob, you mentioned there that it's about the quality of the conversation. If financial planners are listening to this and they're wondering, like, how do we measure the quality of a conversation with our clients? Or what would you, what would your response be to that? Okay, so the first thing I'd say is ask your client for permission and record your next client meeting and listen to the recording and listen to how much you speak and how much your client speaks. You know, if the 80-20 rule applies, as I think it probably will, then I'm guessing that financial planners probably speak for 80% and the client speaks for 20% on average. So that's the first step. Listen and hear what goes on in the meeting. And the next step would then be to say, okay, if I really want the client to work out what they need for their lives, and also help me understand the better, I need to get them to talk more. So I'd be saying, try and shift that ratio so that you as a financial planner only speak for 20% and let your client speak for 80%. But in order to do that, requires some skill. And so the, uh, you know, the, the, there are sort of three skills that, that we need in a conversation. The first is a questioning skill. And so we need to be able to ask open-ended questions because they force people to think and to talk rather than closing the questions. The second thing we need to do is to listen. And, and I know it sounds trite because we all know we've got to listen. And we all listen bad. And so the real practice there is how can I listen more effectively? And, and, and one of the ways, obviously, is just to be present in the meeting and to focus on what the client's saying and try not to let all the thoughts in one's head you know, distract you and also try not to think about what's going to, you know, what your next question is or what you want to say. And the one way that one can ensure that that happens is to allow more silence. So talk less, allow more silence. The third thing is don't ever interrupt your client. So Nancy, Nancy Ryan, is a, who's written a book called Time to Think and various other books, talks about the, the fact that, that interruptions are arrogance masquerading as, masquerading as efficiency. So the reason that we interrupt is because we think we know what needs to be said next. And, and often the financial planner might think that, oh, well, I know what the client needs now, so let me just interrupt. And, and also I want to be efficient, you know, that we've got finite time. So don't interrupt. So it's ask open-ended questions, allow silence, don't interrupt. If you can just do those three things, I think the quality of the conversation will, 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 will get better. And, and obviously the more you practice that, the, the better you'll get it, yeah. That is such a wonderful way of summing up the work <laughs> that you're doing and, and through the coach training. And maybe this is a good opportunity to share a little bit if someone has gone through that exercise and they realize, hey, I need help with this. I go, 
where would where would they start? What are the kind of things that that you would be able to assist them with in in the work that you're doing? Is there any new coach training sessions coming up that you might be involved in? Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think I mean I I I, um, I am involved with a, a program that's beginning um, in um, in May with with Adam Gray, which you know, which um, I, I'm not sure you know. Where the numbers are for that program at this point, I'm currently running a couple of other programs which are already in progress. In progress, but I think if anybody is interested in having some training around this, uh, welcome to get in touch with me. Um, and, and and in fact, I mean, I think the point you're making, which I think is an important point, is that this this stuff that we do need to practice, you know, because we only put theory. It's a bit, I use the analogy of it playing tennis. You know, um, Rafael Nadal or um, Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic, he's the number one player in the world. He's just hit the, just broken Steffi Graz's record of the number of weeks at the number one spot. He has a coach. He has somebody who gives him feedback on how he hits the ball. He practices his backhand, his forehand, his serve. Even though he's the best in the world, he continues to practice, continues to get feedback. And I think, for me, that's the lesson. You know, however you do it, you know, whether you do it in a one-on-one coaching engagement with somebody, when you do it in a training program, it's to, it's to recognize that these are skills that we do need to practice. You know, and, and I know it sounds cliched, but they historically have been the soft skills, but actually they, I think, are the hard skills, and they require a lot of practice. You know, um, I'm guessing that you know what I would hope. You know, financial planners listen to this who see the merit of focusing on their human skills. Hopefully, they see the merit of doing some work on it. Because I think that the scary thing is about the way we get educated is that you know, we we get all this technical stuff from a very young age. You know, we start doing maths when we're you know, six or seven. We start learning to read and that, but but we don't get trained in human engagement skills. You know, throughout our formal education, there's no formal, and then we get out the wide world and. You know, no wonder we have things like wars and disputes, etc., because we don't know how to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, just the awareness alone is not going to fix that. Exactly. I recently, in one of the meetings, I installed CRISP, which allows you to block out background noise. But one of the functions of CRISP, if you have an online meeting, is it measures how much time you speak and how much time the other person speak. I thought, oh, okay, I, I think, and I, and I. Having been through some of this training and spending a bit of time on it, I would imagine that I'm slightly better than average. Maybe it's an overconfidence bias, but I would have expected (laughs) the score to be a little bit higher. And I was shocked, Rob. It came back that I spoke more than 70% of the time. Now, barring this wasn't a very deep conversation, but still, (laughs) I I, I almost felt so despondent or I felt so despondent (laughs) saying, wow, I really need to track these things because my assumption yeah. was the client is speaking maybe equal amount of time, maybe a little bit more, yeah. yet what this data, and I'm, and I'm really hoping it maybe it was very <laughs> inaccurate, um, <laughs> this data is telling me that that's not the case. You know, yeah. We need this constant feedback, and, and that's yeah. sticking out in my mind because now I have a piece of information to address and to say, okay, how do I – how do I adjust that and where do I go from here? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a brilliant um, story, Louis. That's, uh, it's very brave of you to share that story. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think what's, 
and one of the you know what 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 for me that highlights for us and what we so seldom do um, is 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 on the programs that we run and then you you would be familiar with this. You know, we talk about this concept of action, reflection, learn, and that that when we do something, if we're going to get any better at it, we have to reflect on it. You know, and and then in that reflection. As you are doing now, you're reflecting and saying, "Hang on, well, now what can I do differently? What can I do here?" You know, and 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 so it's forcing that sort of learning piece and that should to happen. The problem is, is that we get all of us get into this rut of action, 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 doing, 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 and we don't take the time to reflect. And and again, I mean, I think using the sporting analogy again, I mean, you know, if there's something we can learn from from the sports people is that, you know, they will play a game. They're lucky because their games generally are televised, and then they will sit and watch it and reflect and learn from it, you know, and then see what they can do differently. And and in an ideal world, you know, client meetings would be filmed. So not only can you share and see what the verbal sort of analysis is, but also see what you're doing with your eyes, with your hands. How hard are you really um, coming across as somebody who's engaged, or are you looking over the client's shoulder at the trees outside? <laughs> Do you know of anyone that's doing this? Like, are universities employing these tactics when they train young financial planners to have better quality conversations by recording it? I, I'm not aware of it. I mean, I think. I mean, I think what I. I mean, I'm not aware, and yeah, that's why I speak under correction. I mean, I think there's an increasing recognition within financial planning circles of the importance of want to work financial psychology. You know, so at the moment, I'm I'm one of five people who are busy endeavouring a way to make a contribution to a book on financial psychology, which, as I understand, will become a, a text for people doing their CFP. So I think there's a, a recognition that there is a need for this. I'm not aware of anybody you know, who's sort of doing that level of analysis and training, other than obviously if you come on one of the coaching programs that we spoke about earlier. But, you know, so, but, but again, a coaching program is a finite event, you know, whether it's 12 months or 16 months, it's a it's a finite event. The challenge is to keep going and keep doing it and keep, you know, having those reflections and that. Um, so, I, yeah, I would hope that in the same way that the therapeutic services, you know, um, have supervision, peer supervision, where they will meet and share and discuss and deliberate, I would hope that, that we as a financial planning profession will move in that direction where we can have not only peer supervision, but even, you know, we are likely to come and sit in on a meeting with a client, and I'd like you to give me the feedback of how you find my coach for the client. In the same way that I would hope that professionals would view one another's financial plans and say, actually, you know, would you have, would you have done this this way, or how would you have done it? And, and I know that that does happen within financial planning businesses where there are multiple advisors. There definitely is that sort of peer learning and peer support, but I think it could also happen in inter-business, if that makes sense, inter-practice. So yeah, Rob, lots of opportunity like to... <laughs> we have a lot of work to do if we're going to beat yeah. out the medical profession in, in, in not only client experience, but in client impact, right? Because yeah. these things have the ability to change someone's life for the yes. better and change a family's yeah. trajectory. So... I mean, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for being on the show today. As a parting comment, where would people be able to reach you if they want to 
find out a little bit more about what you're doing or just engage in the work that no, you yeah, want I, to I, keep I, it I, out? No, do you? And I suppose it's a bad place to admit that I'm terrible on social media. <laughs> but, but I can be I can be found on LinkedIn. Otherwise, my email address, robertfundas.co.za, is probably the easiest. I know it sounds a bit antiquated to talk about an email address. <laughs> Absolutely, but, uh, wherever if you if if that works for you, and yeah. someone buys you a cup yeah, of coffee yeah. and and yeah. tackle you in uh, in Cape Town, uh, that might even be better. Yeah, Rob, yeah, exactly. All the best with the work you're doing, and thank you so much for making a massive contribution in the work um, of our Thanks, business Lynn. and just in my expansion as well. Um, you've been instrumental, so thank you so much for that, and all the best. Thanks very much for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers.